Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. It's a great honor to have you on the show tonight. Welcome, Deepak Chopra. Thank you. Yes, this is Uri. Hi, Uri. It's Nicole Whitney calling News for the Soul. Welcome to News for the Soul, Robert Allen. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here with you tonight. Why are you here? You're now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul Highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com. you get this shamanic perspective of what is there in an etheric form in these particular power places. So it's a really powerful experience, an amazing experience. You know, as practical as I am about those kinds of things, I will tell you that I personally witnessed those lights above uh, the horizon. The steps were six feet high, you know, they were like, they were just huge, they weren't human steps. It was some sort of a ceremonial site, which looked very much like it had to be a site, or could have been a site, where something came and landed there. Welcome to News for the Soul. This is Daniel Brinkley. This is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Okay, everybody, take a deep breath. We know that we choose to come to this world, and we're chosen to come to this world, and we've come for breath. We breathe in for ourselves and out for spiritual involvement. And as we breathe these moments, let's open up our heart and open up our souls, and let the true awareness of News for the Soul make its impact now and forever. Good evening. This is News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Back after a little bit of a hiatus in an adventure in Peru, we're back, and he's with me here today, the person we were in Peru with, Dr. David Morehouse, former CIA remote viewer, and we're going to be talking about what happened in Peru. Welcome back, David. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> Isn't it, though? <laughs> yeah. At this point, it's good to be anywhere. So it was good to be in Peru. What an adventure. I'm not even sure where to start. But how about at the beginning of why remote viewers were in Peru? Well, it's an annual trip that we make, and, and the reason we go there primarily is because we're trying to offer kind of an extraordinary experience for both novice remote viewers uh, all the way up to the advanced remote viewers, many of whom were there were very advanced, and of course we had a few people who this was their, they had done the home study course with us, or they some of them had just taken the basic course, but the idea is to take remote viewers there to go to this really wonderful, magical, beautiful country of Peru 
and various sets of circumstances from from temple work to actually standing on the ground of sacred sites and the the intention in being there is for a, a collective experience as well as the individual experience but primarily for this collective experience for viewers to go there to be together in these places and for us to remote view these sacred sites you know, to open ourselves by doing these various initiations and sacred ceremonies at these sacred temples, and then to remote view a particular power place or sacred site, and to carry into that particular place as we stand there physically this non-physical awareness of what it is that we perceive there, this beyond the surfaces, if if you will, experience of being from a viewing perspective. That gives you this, you know, you, you go into it and we, we give you the old archaeological perspective which says, you know, here, here's what we know about the Incan times and, you know, maybe a new archaeological perspective if one exists for that particular site which says, here's what we know about Incan times and here's what we know about pre-Incan times and what may have existed here. Then you have this collective uh, remote viewing experience, you know, using focus questions to try to answer specific things. And then you have Jorge Delgado, who is, you know, the shaman which goes with us. And, and now you get this shamanic perspective of what is there in an etheric form in these particular power places. So it's a really powerful experience, an amazing experience. And now the two years that we've done it, it's just been, I mean, you just can't ask for a better group of people. You just can't ask for a more focused and dynamic and purposeful, committed, loving and compassionate gathering of people that are there in these places, all pulling together to, to master this collective and as well as individual experience. And you were there. Oh, God, yes, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> there you came out of Vancouver down at sea level where you were and stepped into 12,500 feet. That's the first time I saw you when you when you showed up there. Yes, I uh Walking quite slowly and lightheaded. Very slowly, but Camera in hand. three steps at a time. <laughs> I was looking at the footage, and you can hear me wheezing up the hill to catch up with you guys. Well, you just put music to it. Yeah, <laughs> very loud music. Um, you know, that's the thing is, is it was see, we sort of idealize the spiritual aspect of these sites and ooh Machu Picchu, you know, and it's a real spiritual warrior trek almost, really. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and but again, you know, I, I can't say it enough. You, you see the pictures of places like Machu Picchu. You see the places of pictures of like uh, Olite Tambo, Silastani, Wiracocha Temple, the Monkey Temple, the Moon Temple, the Sun Temple. The, all of these things that are Wana Picchu, you know, and the different islands that we went to to see visit the Oro people to, uh, you know, and even to uh, Chiricacao. I, I think I didn't say that correctly. I never do. But to make that trek that we made, which is 60 kilometers and, you know, increases of anywhere from six to 7,000 feet in elevation. It was an amazing journey and a journey that which, which normally is not made by such a diverse group. I mean, we had all ages, we had all sizes, we had all levels of experience of backpackers and, uh, you know, hikers. And then... You yep, talked about Chikakiro. Chikakiro. Chikakiro, the new Machu Picchu site. Yeah, which, uh, you know, it's so little of it yet excavated but and so difficult to get to uh, that not many people go. I mean, not many people. What this group experienced was something that, again, not many people have an opportunity to see because no group the size of our group goes there. 
and uh, usually the groups that go there are, are smaller groups of two or three or four experienced backpackers. Mm-hmm. I was researching on the Internet today, actually, about it, and a recent article that was posted had quoted something to the effect of, you know, less than 100 people this century have set foot on that site. Well, 120 now or so after our group. It was, it was a significant jump in the number, you know, that they had recorded. So Yeah, and again, all age groups, all experience levels, all sizes, all. I mean, it was that was what was so amazing about it. And it, it hadn't been this kind of a group with this these kinds of people. It just I just don't think it would have ever happened. I mean, the guides were quite amazed, and so were the the you know the, the wranglers that that handled the mule team that carried our supplies and other kinds of things were just uh, and you know in talking to Jorge later, they were just all amazed that this group pulled together, care of each other, uh, and made it through that <laughs> entire in de- you know that entire journey, that expedition to go see this place. And even though time was limited for us once we were there, uh, we still had time to go there and have this sacred ceremony and initiation and time to meditate and be there, even though it was only a couple of hours as opposed to a half a day or a whole day, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think once we all figured out where we were going and how hard the trek was, I think we were all amazed that we made it, actually. So it's not something that people should be taking lightly. I want to stress that, but it was worth worth the trek for various reasons. But before we get into that part of the trip and kind of unveil what happened there and what we found there, getting back to how you're saying about how we went into these sacred sites, these thousands-of-year-old sacred sites, and not just seeing them, but feeling them and kind of remote viewing into them yeah. was quite profound. And a lot of us had, you know, a lot of profound moments in there. Yeah. And it's, you know, the big validation of that, of how profound it is, watching this man born and raised there, Jorge Luis Delgado, to, to watch him, this shaman, to watch his responses to what remote viewers are producing. That's, that's really most of the fun of it for me, is not only watching what, what happens for the viewers and seeing what, occurs for them and how excited they are about what they found and and how uh, how confirming it is for them especially as they walk the ground that they were remote viewing hours earlier or when they are remote viewing on the ground in which they're standing but being asked to look beyond the surfaces as remote viewers what's best for me just as a remote viewing teacher is watching just the excitement in this shaman saying, yes, that's what we know. Yes, oh, my God, yes, you know, that's what we know. And, oh, yes, you, you, you answered this question, and you came up with this piece of information. And he did that so often, and he feels so connected to these people who come from all walks of life and all over the world to be here as part of this group who then, you know, open to this understanding that just for him is is a big validation for him and for a validation for his life's work and and, uh, the things that he has been taught throughout his life, which is why he does so much stuff for you guys in terms of not simply giving a demonstration of a ceremony, but really performing an initiation and a rite of passage and preparing you for new levels of understanding. That's, which is, that's his commitment to the remote viewers that are there as opposed to just you know, walking there and, and having an opportunity to listen to a shaman give his perspective, right? You get to participate in, in this pulling back of this gossamer veil separating two worlds. That's a that's a powerful journey. So how is it that you came to choose working with Jorge, and does he have an understanding of what remote viewing is? Yeah, he has a really good understanding. The first year we were there, we, we went with the intention of teaching a class there, so Jorge sat in on the class, and again, it was just a validation and a confirmation for him of, of what it is that he 
felt he already knew and was capable of doing. He's been at this for many years since as a young child. His training as a shaman began around the age of 11. But how I happened upon Jorge, or there came a meeting between the two of us, was really because of Theron and Marianne Mayo who have been going to Peru for many years now. And they made developed a friendship with Jorge. And this friendship with Jorge really became a triad between Don Miguel Ruiz and Jorge Delgado and me. And we just shared ideas and concepts about what could be done, what should be done. And Jorge has begun preparing this book, which Don Miguel is endorsing and or writing the foreword for, and which I am endorsing. And it is a book, a story of his journey, his progression, his learning. And when in remote viewing was introduced to him by Theron and Marianne Mayo, uh, the kind of the coordinators for these journeys, these two journeys we've made. He just opened immediately to it and was really excited about it. And then when he saw what the remote viewers were able to produce last year and this year, then his excitement level just continues to increase exponentially because it's opening so much, opening to so much more possibility for him. I mean, he, he really sees remote viewers as a tool with which to to increase his awareness, to open new pieces of understanding, to, to provide data that is not otherwise available except through shamanic tradition. I mean, through shamanic tale and lore and sharing of stories. I mean, they're sharing stories about etheric flames and the colors of a flame, and then in the blind, viewers will go in and look at this thing and come back with uh, the presence of a flame and uh, the color of the flame, which uh, validates what the shamanic legends have been. So it's not that one replaces the other. It's just that they begin to augment and complement one another, and that's that's what he really loves about it, as well as do I. So when we were going, I mean, it was a marathon of sacred site after sacred site. I mean, there's so many there, and we probably only saw a smidge of what's really there. But many of us were experiencing things that were beyond words, you know, and I noticed that you were there participating right along with us in these ceremonies, and some of them seemed pretty moving for you as well. Do you want to share a couple of what those experiences were, is that more moving, well, profound experiences? I mean, mostly what, what happens when I come there, I mean, sure, I'd love to share with, with you. Most of what happens when I get there is I make it really clear to the, to the participants that my job in being there as a remote viewing teacher is not to be there necessarily to each time participate in all of the ceremonies with you. My job is to, is to be a videographer and a photographer along with other individuals because we really try to keep it. We want to make a really great video record of the experience and turn that into a DVD, which we give to all the participants, and a really great photographic record of that, which we give to all the participants. And so often when you're in the circles and you're doing the other things and doing that work, you know, there's a guy running around the outside doing the video and the photos and stuff like that, which is usually me. Uh, occasionally another member of the group, but we're trying to get that group experience and cohesion put together there. But in one particular place, most people recognize that I, I see that as my calling in this particular place, is not to be the teacher. The teacher is Jorge, and, and I am there to uh, to be just uh, the leader of this expedition and to really serve in a kind of a practical role. But Theron walked over to me at this place called the Monkey Temple, which is where the, the Heart Rock is. And, and as one of this, this temple where we were doing this preparatory work, all of us were there. And, and Theron came to me and said very quietly, why don't you just turn the camera off and why don't you just be in this place? Because it's a really special place. And, of course, I'm kind of looking at him like, what do you mean turn the camera off? I, we have, the camera has to be rolling, you know. But he just reaches up gently and takes the camera from me and, 
you know, turns the camera off, and and I lie down on this, just in the grass, in the ground of this particular place, and I am just suddenly so overwhelmed with love and compassion and just enveloped by the spirit and the energy of this place that um, tears begin to just pour from my eyes just uncontrollably. Uh, and then in just being there in, in maybe 20, 30 minutes in this ground, I just felt so much a part of and connected to something that was so amazing. And it happened so quickly that it was something that every human being ought to experience once in their life, just this, this unconditional love from this Pachamama, from, you know, from, from the earth itself, from this connection to the earth, the inner world, the present world, the upper world, the cosmos itself. This, this authentic aspect of oneself being there on that ground. And then to, to be able to go forward to, to the heart rock and to embrace the heart rock with Jorge uh, behind you, preparing and initiating and, and uttering the incantations as you are there, these ancient thousands of years these words have been spoken at this particular place again there is this experience that is just overwhelming this this connection at, at a level beyond that really just defies language that i experienced there i mean and that was just one place and, and we went to so many so many and it was I mean, so profound like that. It's, it's so it's true it's beyond words yeah three three days at uh, <clears throat> three weeks at at, at basically attending either two or three particular sacred places per day. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty full. That's a pretty full plate. I mean, pe- people were exhausted. We were getting people up, and you know, we were up and out and on to you know to the temple work at early in the morning. So we were there by eight o'clock and you know eight or nine o'clock doing the work, and then from there to the next place, and from there to the next place, and you know back home again at seven and eight o'clock at night. And people getting a little sleep and then back at it again the next day. Well, that and, and also dealing with the, I mean, the realities of traveling to Peru, the altitude sickness and other potential health problems. <laughs> that which you alone experienced. Oh, God. <laughs> Flat out on the Lima, Peru airport floor. Yes, I did. <laughs> but, you, know? you, have to, you have to, you know, you have to make sure that when you're going there, you're going to a developing country, and it's just a matter of, you know, that's why we start, you know, we were starting high and working our way down from there. We wanted to start high up at Lake Titicaca at the highest altitude, and it takes you a couple of days to get acclimated, and then from there, if you're in moderate physical conditioning, it's a couple of days to get, two, three days to get acclimated, and from there, you know, if you'll notice, we had a plan and we had a system. We gradually increased uh, the lengths of the walks. We gradually increased the severity of the inclines, you know, and declines in the walks. We had a whole program and a plan for how we did it. Yes, which would have worked out excellently if it weren't for the fact that I arrived five days late. <laughs> yeah, you missed uh, all the acclamation. I did. But, you know, I mean, it was worth the wheezing because, uh, wow, one of the sites and ceremonies that seemed to be really profound besides the Monkey Temple was the sunrise ceremony at Machu Picchu. Yeah, that is, uh, that's always a really powerful one. And then to go flying on the Condor Rock to do the sunrise ceremony there is very profound. Uh, it, and it's it's again beyond words. Like I couldn't I couldn't understand why we were all feeling so emotional. And it's also at something you don't see happening there. I mean oh. I mean when you look around when you're there, it's this group that's doing these kinds
kinds of things. The vast majority, I mean, you look around this thing, and, and it is, there are lots of people coming there to say that they have seen and stood there on the ground of Machu Picchu, but there are not many, if any, other people. I have, in two years' time, at least in the days that I have been there, I have not witnessed, not once, any other gathering of people to conduct ceremonies and initiations. And that's not to say it's not that it doesn't occur, and I'm sure that there are some listeners that have probably seen or participated in those kinds of things. But in the time that I have been there, now two years in a row, I have not witnessed that. But this group is always doing that. You know, first up there in the morning, uh, there before the sun has even come up, and they're in position to receive their instruction. And then you are in this powerful place where for millennia, millennia, human beings or more have stood on this very same ground in this very same preparation with these sharing and connecting to the ritual of these thoughts throughout millennia, this this energetic representation of all life to be have, that have stood there to watch the sun come up through these over this particular place in the mountains to watch the rays of sun crawl down from the mountain top until they finally touch your face and embrace and envelop your body again and there again there's not a dry eye in the house because it's just it's just the experience and the connection of those who have come before that have been in this place. It was amazing just to, to look around and to see every person with tears streaming down their face simply from play, from being from the preparation and then the being in this place, this ancient place, and in this ceremony uh, as old as time itself. Oh, it was, it was amazing. It was, and and uh, it was really powerful for everybody there. I mean, my mind was thinking, you know, what's the big deal? It's a sun. You see it every day. Hello. <laughs> you know, like you say, it's beyond words. It's feeling this uh, history and the intention behind the exercise and experiencing it in a whole different way. Right. The stones, you know, the stones, the, the, the walls, the ground, it all speaks. I mean, it's there. It, it's it's what a remote viewer lives for, is that seeing beyond the surfaces, seeing and feeling beyond the surfaces. It's what anyone with a, with a spiritual quest in their life seeks, which is that ability to connect beyond the surfaces of things, beyond just what the physical can see or touch or feel, but to really feel, if you will, in, into the quantum level, into the energetic level, because at that level there are no definable edges, which means that the history of that place continues there in this energetic level. And being there, being present there, connects you to that, and your whole body feels that, and your, your soul feels that, and your, your mind connects to the mind of those who have come before for the 20 and, you know, 10 and 20 and 30,000 years before in this particular place. And as everyone there knows, even Jorge knows, it's like, you know, the, the reign of the Inca, which was, you know, 500 to 1,000 years, that, I mean, it, that was a minor remnant reign of these particular places. These things were assembled, built, put there, lived there, you know, blessed and, and created and existed for millennia beyond the Inca, for millennia. And to be a part of that and share that, if if only for the time it takes for the sun to rise up over the mountain, then that is a magical, that's a magical time of one's life that can never be fully explained only in language. It has to be experienced personally firsthand really to get it. So do you want to explain to them what the condor flying was? Well, 
And I'll we'll send some pictures, and uh, they'll be posted on the web so that uh, you can see them, that listeners can see them there. There's a particular rock that's there that's called Condor, the Condor Rock, and most of the most people don't know what that rock is for. But it, the way in which the rock is shaped as a place where you actually you sit, and it is shaped to fit a human spine, and so you sit on this rock and lie back on the rock and your head then is extended backwards over the rock, and you're looking thousands of feet down. I mean, you're not actually, I mean, you if, if you were to fall off of the rock, which you wouldn't, you'd fall about 30 feet or so. But, uh, I mean, from ledge to ledge, it goes, it, the sensation is that you are now upside down looking through the valley around Machu Picchu, upside down. And, of course, uh, as you know, that we had the, the condor feathers and the Andean eagle feathers uh, all put together in ceremonial handles so that each person, when they were on the rock for their time on the rock, were holding the condor feathers. And it was a place where you were in Incan and pre-Incan times, a, a place where a human could, in that position, then link with the visual reference of flight uh, as if one were a condor. And you have this sense then of being this powerful spiritual power animal soaring above this sacred place. And, it, you know, that's after the sunrise ceremony that that is there. And then there was, there's also another place where you are taken where you're shown where you can kneel or stand on this other particular rock and close your eyes and feel through your heart and through your mind's eye the sense of what Machu Picchu is uh, and what's really significant about it besides just the grandeur and the beauty of the construction and its location, but really the energy of the place, being able to stop looking and to begin experiencing and feeling rather than thinking about what it is that, that is there. Feeling what it is, that's, that's exactly what it is. And I have to thank you for prodding me on to do that condor flying. <laughs> Because <laughs> I probably put it, would have pulled the uh, I'm filming card <laughs> to get yeah. out of it. <laughs> Those of us with height issues, it's a bit challenging to say the least to be dangling over you know thousands of feet of valley. But yeah, when people see the pictures, they'll they'll get the reference for it. When they see it, they'll be like, uh, I don't blame Nicole for not having wanted, <laughs> but. You know, you have all these guys that are there. You know, you had uh, Troy and me and others and, all. you know, all these guys that will help you into position. And, of course, Jorge right there talking to you, holding your feet. Uh, I know that doesn't sound comforting the way I'm describing it. <laughs> no, when you were dangling over the cliff, you know. <laughs> you pretty much lost them there. But <laughs> no. The other one where right next to the the doorway, the portal to where, if you'll remember, or something? Jorge was holding Omar by the belt. <laughs> he was testing, uh, you know, testing Omar, the strength of Omar's belt, so that Jorge could sit there and hold him by the back of the belt while Omar leans out over, you know, several hundred feet of a cliff and opens his arms to, and closes his eyes to fly in his mind's eye like the condor to soar through the valley, kind of in this, this very present, lucid dream or viewing, if you will. But it was it's just kind of funny to see some of the practical stuff. So, you know, how strong is your belt before I do this? It was quite funny because that was actually when I just finally wheezed my way to the top of the hill to catch up with the group. That's yeah. what was happening. And I remember standing there looking on in horror thinking, oh, God, do we all have to do that? 
Jorge was, oh, no, we'll all fly when we get you to Machu Picchu. Exactly. But happy we did. Boy, it, it's, it's the thing. It's, it's, you know, we'll be posting footage and photos up soon, and you can kind of get a better idea of what we're talking about on newsforthesoul.com, actually on lifechangingtv.com as well. But it's, it's a feeling thing. It's not like going there and just seeing, just looking. Like you're saying, all these other tourists were kind of there, but not seeing or feeling what we were feeling, not having the same experience. But marveling at the experience we were having. I mean, and even in the resonant chambers and other things at places, you had, you had people from other groups trying to kind of like just stand next to this group because of the energy and the love of this group. People wanted to be next to it. They were drawn to it. They felt it, was, it wasn't what was being said. It was what they were feeling again in this place that they were being drawn to because what was being said was, you know, if you're really looking just for a litany of information, it's uh, you'd be better off to pay to buy the guidebook and pay one of the pay one of the uh, approved, stamped, sealed, you know, authorized Machu Picchu guides to drag you all over the site and say, well, this was this and that was that and this was this and that's that. Uh, but to be part of a group that experiences the site from an energetic level, a cellular level, uh, you know, a viewer level, uh, a, a dissolve yourself into the site itself uh, level, then you wanted to be with this group because that's what people who were, you know, people who had a spiritual connection and even beyond that were drawn into it. And, and, you know, again, you go back into this really diverse group, you had people from all, again, all walks of life, from people in the business world and VP of Sony Music and, you know, and, and guys from, you know, from the contractor operative, uh, you know, security world to uh, mothers to, I mean, retired people, yet everyone... It wasn't just a bunch of spiritual guru-focused kind of people that were there. It was people from everywhere, and all people in that group began to be connected and to feel and sense and understand uh, the significance of what it is that they were involved in. And that's so powerful for me to see that happen. Uh, it's that's it's my great it's it's the big gift to me is to watch just the faces uh, and feel the heart and the tears and see the smiles and uh, and the successes and the growth that take place in the people who make that journey do the things that they might otherwise say I I, I would ne- I could never do that you know what we have to do take a quick break after this commercial though I want to come back and talk about that last week the trek to Chukakiro, what we found there, and uh, what was profound about that trip. Okay. We'll be right back with our guest, Dr. David Morehouse, former CIA remote viewer. If you've missed any of the show or any of our shows, go to newsforthesoul.com. We'll be right back after this with more. Hello, everybody. This is Damian Brinkley. Welcome to the hearts and minds of Informa. This is News for the Soul. You are now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul Highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com. Visit newsforthesoul.com anytime to hear all of our shows, read positive news, and interact with like-minded people from around the world. Now let's get back to the show. And 
And we're back. This is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. Here, back from Peru and talking to former CIA remote viewer Dr. David Morehouse, who was leading this intrepid track that culminated into a four-day hike. Well, it was a lot more than a hike uh, into Chukakiro being built as the new Machu Picchu site, and it's quite the ride getting in there. It, but, you know, we found something interesting, didn't we, David? Yeah. Oh, you did. You were quite excited. Oh, about the top? The top. <laughs> Tell them about the top, David. <laughs> uh, yeah. We Well, <laughs> when we were up at uh, the very top, there, some of us arrived because, you know, we had uh, – we had uh, walkers, and then we had some folks who were riding and other things. And then you had, had people like me who were limping in. <laughs> yes, we, we kept the the people riding the the horses uh, to the to the rear, just in case we had any medical emergencies and you know that kind of stuff. So uh, the hikers arrived first, and so as the hikers came in, uh, we had just about two hours of sunlight left and so we there were four of us that uh, that made that continued on as exhausted as everyone was continued on the uh the half hour 35 minute from the base camp on up to the site itself and once up on the site itself uh we're looking around as a site moving around we were the only ones up there we were taking pictures just an amazing amazing thing and it was you know getting ready to watch the sun go down in this ama- in this in this gorgeous valley of tremendous magnitude just watching that go down but there's a there was a point from where this site was that that just had a stairway that went down over and then a small path that went up and it was it was very much an integral part of the site it was kind of like looking at Huayna Picchu uh, as which is attached to Machu Picchu uh, but this particular site at Chococirao you look at it and and it is just the this mountain which is probably 75 meters in diameter but the whole top of it is chopped off perfectly flat and it's chopped off perfectly flat and it's near perfectly round and it has a wonderful you know pre-incan wall built around this thing so as the four of us look at it we look at it and the first thing that comes to our mind is well that's like a landing zone and we're thinking the two of us that are ex-military guys we're thinking like well that's a landing zone for like helicopters and then we then then we kind of snicker and it's like yeah but there weren't any helicopters Mm -hmm. at that point so nor now up there at that height so this was this is not a helicopter landing zone this is this but this was a this was a pad because when you go up there there's nothing there but just this ground. And, and so somebody uh, from the group said, well, it could have been a playing field of some sort. And we're thinking, looking around, going, right. That would like be having a tennis court up here, you know. How many, whatever it is that you thought you were playing with, do you think you would knock over the wall, which was only three feet high, and then it would drop down 2,000 feet, and you'd have to, of course, run down to pick the ball up and come back up again. So just jokingly, that was an impossible, you know, just not probable that it was a playing field of sorts it was some sort of a ceremonial site which looked very much like it had to be a site or could have been a site where something came and landed there now that's where i left that at that point and that's where that's where troy and nancy and and rebecca and i we we looked at it and we went yep could have been a landing site really kind of looks like it could be a landing site and don't really know what else it could possibly be there were no ruins no foundations there was nothing on it except this mountain with the top cut off perfectly level, or seemingly so. 
near perfectly round, 75 meters in diameter, maybe 100 meters in diameter, and with a, about a three-foot wall, one-meter-high wall all the way around it, uh, and, a, and a stairway up to it or pathway up to it, uh, and very much a part of Chococirao. I mean, I mean, within 50 meters from the main, well, 100 meters within from the main structures of Chococirao. There were also some other interesting aspects of Chococirao. There was a particular place between two of the main structures that, uh, and I'll give you a picture for the, of this to put on the website, but there was a place where there were steps, but the steps were enormous steps. They were, the steps were six feet high, you know, they were like, they were just huge, they weren't human steps, but, but there were on the sides little human steps. Now, when you first look at something like that from an archaeological perspective, you're saying, well, it could have simply have been architectural, and that's true. It, it could have simply been architectural. Uh, it certainly wasn't agricultural, which is kind of an oddity when you're looking at things there. You're looking at it and saying, well, it's not, it's not agricultural because they weren't, these were not terraces that were being, where they were planting and growing. This was a narrow set of stairways, kind of like what you would see in the Sun Temple uh, in other places in Copan and, uh, and other places in Mexico, uh, where you see the Sun Temple, these large square uh, pyramids with a set of aligned steps going up to the center. The difference being that the lined set of steps going up through the center from the bottom to the top were six feet tall. The steps were six feet tall. So uh, the rise of the steps, uh, the rise and the landing of the steps were you know, equally, they were like six feet, then nine feet, six up, nine feet back, six up, nine feet back. But then there were little people steps, you know, put into the left and the right-hand sides of this so that human beings seemed to be capable that you could walk up it and then you would have to traverse across the big step and go up the next set of, you know, four steps and traverse across and the next set of four steps and traverse across again to get yourself to the top. So I took a picture of it. So we were then like just in our mind kind of putting these things together, all of us kind of smiling and saying, okay, we're not drawing a conclusion here. We're just throwing out a possibility that we have a landing strip and then we have some sort of steps here that are built for things that are definitely not, I mean, standard human size. And if you're looking at uh, most Incans or Incan descendants, they're shorter than we are, you know. They're all in, they're all well under six feet and, and pushing mostly around five feet. Most of the women are under five feet. Most of the men are between five and five, five, five feet, five inches tall, five, six, five feet, six inches tall. So this was just an unusual set of stairs and an unusual platform to be a part of this site. And this site was they estimate what I, I think it, they're saying what 13 to 15 percent of the site is at this juncture excavated and the rest of it is I mean there's so much of it that they're still just trying to restore and mm-hmm. excavate it, restore. it covers the entire mountain yeah I mean it's everywhere right down to the bottom it's everywhere you look right right on up to the glacier which is you know the glaciers which are not very far above us as you well know having huffed and puffed up the mountain uh, that the glaciers and the snow-capped mountains are right there but then here we are all standing in this particular place, looking at it, marveling at just uh, the structure and why, asking ourselves why these kinds of conditions are existing. And then, you know, above head comes, above our head comes uh, three, uh, three condors just soaring majestically, just 50 feet above us, you know, 50 to 100 feet above us. Just not, not a wing flap among them, just giant nine and ten foot wingspans and they just cruise out over the top of us and 
you know, circle around a bit looking at us. And, of course, we're all thinking, looking at us as though we might potentially be food. (laughs) (laughs) But, of course, not. They're looking for Andean rabbits or something else, I'm hoping, and they just keep on cruising then out over the, you know, out over the over this massive valley with uh, thousands of feet down, you know, seven thousand feet down. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. I mean, how, how do you how I don't know. describe it? I don't know how we really get this across without people experiencing it and seeing it because it's it's beyond words. Again, you're feeling into these sites, and this was. I wish we had more time at that last site because well, I didn't know about the steps. Definitely send me the picture about the steps, but some just amazing energy, we'll say, was yeah. coming off that site. Oh yeah, you you have to see the side, the steps. Uh, the steps were absolutely. You looked at those things and went, yeah, these. I'm looking at a set of them right now. It was just that you just went, yep, nah, these were not these were not people steps. So I mean, as a remote viewer, what are you sensing beyond the surface of those larger steps? Well. Again, I you know it would be something that what I sense and what I view would be two different things. Uh, so I I didn't make it a target and I haven't looked at it. Uh, I may do that in the future, uh, but I didn't at that time. So all I can say to you is what I just when I looked at it, just from being a uh, from a scientific, uh, practical archaeological perspective, I looked at it and I had no understanding of why steps would be like that unless the steps were there for just an architectural perspective. And again, that's a possibility. Uh, but my gut tells me that I didn't see that anywhere else. You know, I, I didn't at Machu Picchu at, or at any of the other sites that we have been to there uh, see that example. That doesn't mean that that's not the case because you can see a building in downtown San Diego or downtown Vancouver, right, uh, in the city that you might not see that building anyplace else. It may be architecturally unique. And so. I'm not minimizing it. I'm just speaking as a, again as a practical and from a, as a science as a scientist from a scientific perspective. And I'm saying that I did not see that example, that architectural example, anywhere else in a, in two years of journeying there. So to have seen it there in that place, and then to have seen this bizarre little pad uh, or large pad, uh, where at that altitude, just having the top of a mountain neatly removed, uh, and it was quite a bit. I mean, if you followed the line of the mountain up and and when i give you this picture uh you can you know you can draw a line and if you see what was removed where there again most of the time that wasn't done i mean that's the whole beauty of most of the structures there is that they are pinned and neatly laid into the creases and the crevices and you know terracing and the direct you know and directly perpendicular to the fall line of this of these particular mountains which are quite steep it's odd to see a place where suddenly uh, the entire top of the mountain is removed. You know, not, yes. it's just gone. It, it just, and if you follow it up, it means several hundred feet of this particular uh, of this particular point of the mountain were removed. It's not the whole mountain itself, but I mean, it's a it's a point of the mountain. It's a it's a piece that comes out and forms its own small mountain top, which was removed to leave this small round this. 75 meter to 100 meter diameter pad that was up there, which is where we went to have uh, our sunrise ceremony at that particular place at Chocacirao. Uh And then I know that 
the, 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 that night or the early the next morning because we after we made the trek down the mountain, which was uh, a very long and arduous day the next day, but uh, in the bottom base camp before we began the uh, the 6,000 foot climb up out of the river valley uh, to the to the mountain pass and then making a, our way back into the village uh, where we were picked up and, and moved by bus from there. But uh, I know that there were amazing displays and dances of lights that were there that not just one or two people saw, but that you know 20 to 25 people saw and, and watched happening and watched flashing and dancing and rolling and spinning and uh you know there were some people who were trying to say well there's a campsite up that direction <laughs> but you know there was no campsite up that direction and well not only that but at some points those lights were above the <clears throat> yeah they were horizon. above the horizon and the tree line and i and i will as, as just as practical and you know as practical as i am about those kinds of things i will tell you that I personally witnessed those lights above uh, the horizon. And even if you wanted to say that they were lights in a campsite, if you wanted to say they were lights in a campsite, then those guys that were in those lights, that had those lights in that campsite, were doing some amazing <laughs> sets of acrobatics, uh, you know, leaping over the top of each other and somersaulting and spreading apart and dancing back together again and jumping over the top of each other all while pointing their lights down at some other campsite, which they knew nothing about, down in the middle of complete blackness in this river valley. So, you know, and in having walked up, you know, the 6,000 feet, it, having come up the 6,000 feet in the switchbacks, the switchbacks, uh, those of us that were in the, in the hiking group were constantly looking for evidence of, of other people and lights and another campsite where those lights may have been present. And I'm just telling you very just honestly and genuinely, they were, they were not found. I mean, there was, there was nothing else there. There, was not a, there wasn't a group of people camped on the mountainside, you know, somewhere that were, you know, dancing around with lights and shining mm -hmm. down. No, uh, absolutely. Just, there just wasn't. There no. Wasn't, that didn't exist there. And, and at the speeds that I saw them going at, I mean, campers can't go that fast. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was, it was, it's kind of... I mean, it's preposterous to try. Is that as sometimes people, you know, take on ridiculous, you know, take minor conditions and turn and over exaggerate them into ridiculous things, and that happens. It's also preposterous to turn around and deny what it is that you're seeing, yeah. and without any kind of evidence to the contrary, to turn around and explain it away as not that we know, not that we're saying what we know what we saw, but that yeah, and I think whatever that's the best it was. Thing. Yeah, we don't. We don't know what we saw, but it's not it was light. highly unusual. Very. And and uh, there was not the, the to explain it away as 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 uh, other campers, you know, dancing around with flashlights. That's just that's as preposterous as it is to turn around and say, oh, I know it's uh, you know, Pleiadians or whatever it is. <laughs> and they contacted me in my sleep, and there they are. I mean, it's just. It was just you had twenty some odd people standing there, including Peruvians and you know, and uh, mule wranglers, and other people standing there. Everyone watching this, going, "Whoa!" Well, I know what it was not. It was not you know a helicopter or an airplane or no. a camper or no. a flying llama or. 
or, or, a, or a condor with a flashlight. No. I mean, it was, I've never seen anything like that, and it was very dramatic. And I, I, I mean, that, for me, that made the trip. That made the trip on top of, you know, finding this, this incredible site and, you know, seeing this alleged landing pad area and all these things and just feeling the site and then seeing that sighting that morning. That, that made the hike for me. It was worth yeah. every minute. And guess what? I got those lights on, on tape. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah, you were the, you were, there was Nicole. I wish everybody could have seen it. You know, <laughs> loping along on her mule, you know, and she had camera in hand, you know. Yes. And, and My several burrow. times I saw her loping along on the mule. <laughs> Nicole is writing notes and, you know, about what I'm going to talk about here and talk about there. Just so, you know, doing all the things she can do so that you can have the same journey she had. Well, you know, I, it's interesting how things happen because if I had known that I could only lope along on my burrow half of the way, I probably wouldn't have gone because I probably would have thought I wouldn't make it. So yeah. I'm glad that I did not know that going in. And uh, But definitely I, I advise people to have lots of time to do that trek if they're going in. And, and we were so lucky to have guides that kept us safe and everything. But are you going to do this trek next year? Um, don't know if I would do Chokakirao again. I, I mean, I would, I would personally, I would do it again in a second. But uh, it ended up being a, uh, it was, it was a stretch for a lot of people. And uh, next year, before I would do something uh, like that, or similar to that, I would be really select about who I allowed to go on it, just because it, it was such a stretch. But at the same time, it took a lot of people who would never otherwise do something like that and beyond the limits. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad I went. Go to davidmorehouse.com if you want to find out about going to Peru next year. And uh, we're out of time already. Thank you for everything, David. Oh, thanks for having me again. And thanks to all the listeners and all the people that support uh, News for the Soul. I really do appreciate it. All right. Newsforthesoul.com if you missed any of the show or any of our shows. We'll see you right here next week on News for the Soul. You're now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul Highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com. Breathe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to News for the Soul. This is Daniel Brinkley. Whitney News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. From the heart of Vancouver, what a great place to bring news for the soul. I know, isn't it perfect? Remember that movie did some Christopher Walken? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like that for real. I think reasonably accurate, too, honey. Oh, that's an understatement, honey. (laughs) Okay, everybody, take a deep breath. We, come, we know that we choose to come to this world, and we're chosen to come to this world, and we've come for breath. We breathe in for ourselves and out for spiritual involvement. And as we breathe these moments, let's open up our hearts and open up our souls. And let the true awareness of news for the soul make its impact. 
now and forever. Well, Danny, Danny just mentioned the heart attack. That is how he died, isn't it? Yes. Wow. Actually, two heart attacks, right up one heart after the other. Yeah, that's as, what as I said. Wow. Saying. No, I had him. I, this is not a... You know, I have him. You know, the whole thing about the spirituality and, and the wealth or sustainability not going together, I just think is the biggest load of crap, you know? <laughs> I mean, what have you Stay got... Like it is, girl. <laughs> well, really, what have you got to give anyone if you've got nothing? Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Candace is going bye-bye. Yes, um, I had this really bizarre experience where I got sucked through a wall, like a solid wall. During the time that I was knocked unconscious, uh, uh, an angel came to me. People's solidity began to morph with the geometries. So you'd see little bits of their, like their hand began to go missing. And this particular angel, as I recount in the book, uh, said to me that I had chosen the wrong path in life, that I was to choose a new path, and it was to be a path of peace, I was to teach peace. Lots of amazing things coming up for this hour. News for the Soul, um, Seafog, back in one minute. I'd have to believe that the times that we're in are very important to us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Because if we're not really, really careful in paying and complimenting news for the soul, we're about to find ourselves wrapped up in something that will literally encompass the world. Yeah. And not from the viewpoint that we're looking at it from. And so tonight, it is an empowerment. A place to become aware. A place to change. A place to not become fear-based, but become loving. Let's all take that deep breath. Breathe. Staying connected to each other and reminding each other about, you know, holding this energy, not getting sucked up into all that. Like all that garbage on TV for the last three days, just showing all the reruns of all the people falling out of the skyscrapers on the 11th, and, you know, just over and over wallowing in the low frequency. Creating a mindset. Exactly. Nicole, that's, that's a mindset. That is, a, that is a controlled mindset to change people's consciousness, exactly. to create a way at which that they can be controlled to make a decision like mm -hmm. war or not war. Totally. You know, I, I figure... Hey, talk is cheap. <laughs> I probably shouldn't, shouldn't say on a talk show, but I mean, compared to doing and experiencing, it's cheap, right? So experiencing that's is, experience is some of what you do now. Um, They're driving, should they be concerned? No, 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 no. <laughs> but uh, turn the radio up a little bit. Oh, yeah. Shankuntia, Tenakuihota, Grandfather. Carry me, Grandfather. Shitehoka. We are all it, and that's really 
what cosmic consciousness is about. I mean, Christ consciousness was the last age. We're in cosmic consciousness now. And cosmic consciousness is, oh God, we all are God. You just tuned in. <laughs> and you're wondering what the heck you just tuned into. We need to do that. Uh, I don't care if it's prayer. I don't care if it's conversation. I don't care what it is. But the one thing that people need to do is hold themselves accountable for their reactions and for the manner in which they interpret the nature of the crisis that is now at work on this planet. Experiments that were done between 90, 95, 98. And what they're telling us, Nicole, first of all, is they, they are confirming beyond any shadow of a doubt that we communicate with our world through a previously unrecognized form of energy. Uh, I'm not going to say it's new, it appears to have been there for a long time, but it's never been recognized. Uh, this form of energy works beyond the bounds of space and time. Information moves through this field of energy faster than, uh, than the principles of light say that it should. This is one of the mysteries. So, Breathe. Let's let this night and what news for the soul is about, like we always say, it's news for the soul. It's not for the, the conscious as much as it is for the true spiritual side of us that drives the nature of our lives, that makes us, see, it makes us seek understanding and yearn to be closer and closer to what is true reality. This is a, a telephone uh, call where I'm speaking with the mother of a 23-month-year-old child. At the beginning of the clip, you hear the mother talking, you hear me laugh, and you hear the baby go goo-goo-ga-ga. Let's listen together. Entirely indecipherable uh, baby babble. But backwards, the secret message, I can hear this child say, I spank him. Okay, little hairs on my neck going up. Now, they're starting to study the space between the molecules. Daniel called it the exotic exon ionosphere. And what they found is the space between the molecules vibrate to the exact same frequency as love. So in my book, another word for love is God. So when they say love is the glue that binds the universe together and love is all there is, science is actually starting to prove that. You are now tuned in to Nicole Whitney's News for the Soul Highlights, life-changing spotlights she has shared with leading teachers in the human consciousness field since 1997. Go now to newsforthesoul.com to hear the full shows totally free. That's newsforthesoul.com.